the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, the Big Air Cheese share price shoots up after a good profit result and rice growers in the Riverina, they're worried about the detection of the fungal disease rice blast that's been found in northern New South Wales. Yeah, it's one of our prominent varieties here and uh, we get excellent yields from it. So it's really important that any local varieties, um, they need to be you know, bred locally, the, the seed, to have that blast resistance. So we don't have resistance to blast in our varieties here, so it would be um, quite a devastating blow. We'll also look at the issue of uh, call to make uh, pig dogs illegal. You might have some thoughts on that. You can send us a text as well on any of the issues you hear about on the program, 0467 982 and we'll look at the rice blast issue as well shortly too. But first up, uh, as I said before, you might want to comment on this story, 0467 982 because police in regional New South Wales, they've called for the use of dogs to hunt wild pigs to be made illegal. In a letter tabled to budget estimates this week, the Rural Crime Unit asked the state government to consider changing the legislation to specifically prohibit the use of hunting dogs to hunt animals, and in particular, feral pigs. Letter states some hunting dogs are exposed to significant injuries, claims that they rarely receive professional veterinary treatment, and says the practice has little or no impact on feral pig numbers compared to things like aerial culls. Animal Justice Party MLC Emma Hurst told reporter Hugh Hogan she wants the practice to be made illegal under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. It's already illegal to unnecessarily cause pain and suffering to an animal under the Act, Um, but this has never really been trialled in a court case in regards to pig dogging and pig dog hunting. Now, we know that the animals are suffering, essentially, in pig dog hunting. Um, Dogs are trained and then set on pigs. Um, I've seen footage of pigs being absolutely torn apart before um, the hunter steps in and and stabs or cuts the throat of the pig. Um, Now, this is a prolonged pain and suffering for that animal. Um, Now, what the police are calling for, and some of the police that we've spoken to as well, um, are talking about the fact that, you know, if we actually had it specifically in the legislation that pig-dogging itself was an illegal act, um, then it would be much more clear for any prosecutions to take place. This might be like news to people, I suppose, in rural areas that see pig-dogs around all the time, that it actually may be... Illegal. I mean, it's crazy. There's vagueness around this uh, this practice. I suppose. Yeah. Look, and and I think it's um it's a big concern. It's something that we do hear a lot from regional and rural communities about. I know that um, a lot of the time it's involved with other illegal activity as well, such as trespassing. Um, there's been an enormous number of, of complaints um, of illegal trespass with pig doggers going onto um, people's property in the middle of the night um, without permission. Um, so. There is this whole sort of um, legally dubious area, um, and particularly in regards to um, the amount of pain and suffering that is occurring. But, of course, um, the enforcement agencies, which is the police, the RSPCA and the Animal Welfare League, um, have not, to my knowledge, ever taken a case actually to court um, to see if it is um, technically deemed as illegal. Um, But as the Act itself is being reviewed, um, hopefully um, we can get this across to the Minister 
um, and she can really start to look into into this and make sure that that rural crime prevention um, is put into place and considered as part of the Proctor Act. And I suppose just trying to sort of gauge the other side, some people might say, you know, pig dogging is an important practice for controlling wild pig numbers. What would you say to something like that? I think that, you know, we need to look at what pig dogging itself is. Um, it is such an extremely inhumane action. Um, it can't be justified in any sense of the word. Um, I know that um, a lot of hunting um, organisations have even contacted us and they are against pig-dogging because of the absolute brutality um, that's been seen in a lot of this footage. Um, a lot of this footage goes up online on people's Facebook and other social media um, and it gets that taken down. It gets taken down because it is so graphic. It's just so brutal um, and we would really really like the minister to make sure that she listens to the community um, and make sure that that's included in the new act. Animal Justice Party MLC Emma Hurst, the national president of the Australian Pig Doggers and Hunters Association, Ned Makem, says he's confused by the letter. He doesn't think more changes are needed to the legislation, just a licensing scheme for pig hunters. The penalties are already there. We, we understand that the police are... Frustrated, but we don't understand how banning something that's already banned, illegal hunting, is already banned, and the police say they can't control it. Um, well, that's how I read it. That they just so their solution then is to bring in more bans. So, well, who's going to police those? But the, the difficulty for us is that what we've suggested post, you know, illegal hunting reviews and things like that is the that one of the solutions would be regulation of pig hunting with dogs uh, through a licensing system or an expansion of the restricted game hunting licence system in New South Wales. We've suggested that for New South Wales, for Queensland, for Victoria, for the ACT, uh, in animal welfare reviews. Um, we see that as a way of delineating um, the, the separation between legal and illegal hunters. Um, so the, 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 at the moment, the police have difficulty identifying who's legal and who's illegal. Uh, the only way they can do it is if the person can produce permission um, to be wherever they are, and you've got seven days to do that. That's the, how the law works. Um, and if you can't produce that, that proof of permission, then uh, you, know, you, can be, you can be fined and all that sort of stuff. Um, so we think that the, the, the solution is, in fact, regulation, not another... Like another ban, like I, I, I just don't understand the thinking. It's just really confusing to me. What about the claim of it having little to no impact on wild pig numbers compared to something like aerial culling? Uh, what, what do you make of that? Um, again, error in fact. Um, we're at the moment uh, involved in a number of research projects, which is another one of the things we do. So at the moment, we're running uh, a data gathering exercise uh, with hunters all over Australia. Uh, we started in January, so we're nearly two months into it now, uh, and we've got you know figures X and Y that show how many how many hunters have registered to hunt, uh, how many of them actually hunt during that period, and what their average yield of pigs is per month. And at the moment, that average yield is 19.6 pigs per month. Now, the lowest estimate of how many pig hunters there are in Australia is 125,000. So that's per month, 125,000 hunters, uh, and then you apply the participation rate, which is about 
46%, so 46% of 123,000 hunters are catching 19.6 pigs uh, each month. It, it equates to potentially over a million pigs a month. Now, there's no government agency that's anywhere near that. Half that figure, and there's no government agency even combined that's anywhere near that. Recreational hunters are having a massive impact on the feral pig population. The issue is that the feral pig population has been severely underestimated, and that's what we think our, this research, once it's analysed by not us, but by the university that, uh, that's helping us compile it, um, that's what I think, that, that's the conversation that'll spark. Where I live in northern New South Wales, poaching, which is what um, is the colloquial term for illegal hunting, um, is generally managed on the side of the road by whoever's got access to the country. So if someone's poaching your country as a pig hunter, that's accepted that part of your duty is to look after the landholder's uh, property. Um, and if you talk to landholders, the vast majority of them that we deal with say the best way to reduce illegal hunting is have legal hunters there. Not that it's, you know, it's all about being tough blokes or anything like that, but illegal hunters like to operate outside of um, areas where they're noticed. Uh, so they like to operate in the dark, um, away from scrutiny. So if there's another set of lights appears and someone approaches them, they, they generally go. Sometimes they don't. Um, but it's about... It's like, you know, if you, if you leave a, uh, a shed undisturbed, it gets full of rats. If you're constantly working in the shed, you don't have as many rats. Just one more thing from the letter I'd like to ask you about. It did mention that it did say some some pig dogs, not all, but it did say some pig dogs are, you know, uh, kept in cages for multiple hours a day, rarely receive professional veterinary treatment, and can mm. get their um, can get like you know ripped open by the tusks of the pigs. What do you what did you make of those comments from in regarding the letter? Well, of course, dogs that can be caged, same as a dog being on a chain, they're a working dog. They need to be protected. Um, we're required to, by law, not have dogs roaming around the community. So a dog can be in a cage. Cage is an emotive word that, for some people, a house is a cage, you know. Um, but the, if, they've, if they've got... There's requirements about how dogs have to be housed, and if people are meeting those, then that, that's fine. It's, it's not about dogs wandering around, you know, having tea parties in the backyard. It's about them being safe from the weather, plenty of water, plenty of shade, um, good bedding, Security from one another. You don't want to have a whole bunch of dogs, you know, of any description all camped together because, you know, a blue can develop. Um, so caging dogs, you know, that, that's, just a, that's just a sort of red herring as though that's evil. You know, and as for pig dogs rarely have professional veterinary treatment, talk to the veterinary community. They make a fortune out of hunters having dogs get shot for parvo and all sorts of things that, that we, require, we require to do. People invest thousands and thousands of dollars in their pig dogs and treat them accordingly. Ned Makem is the National President of the Australian Pig Doggers and Hunters Association. He was speaking there with Hugh Hogan. And you can read more about that story online on the ABC Rural website. And we're getting uh, plenty of texts on that issue at the moment as well. Um, Dave in Trundles texted in saying many professional feral pig hunters out his way are using drones rather than dogs to seek out the pigs. Uh, also, someone's texted in a, um, a few comments along these lines. We should uh, get rid of the pig dog owners as well, says uh, this person says. And they say, uh, um, 
Another issue is someone talking about uh, Irwin's texted in saying pig dogs are a repeat of greyhounds. How about a license and uh, track of pig dogs and pig dog owners plus resource rural policing properly? It's a thin end of the wedge. Next, we'll be getting rid of working dogs. Piggers generate millions of dollars into rural communities, Irwin says. That's just uh, some of the text coming through on the text line. It's uh, coming up to 17 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. With 98% of Australia's rice growing in the Riverina, news that rice blast has been found in crops in northern New South Wales is highly concerning. Rice blast was detected in a crop near Lismore earlier this month and some crops are being destroyed to stop the spread. Sunrise chairman and large-scale rice grower at Moolamine uh, uh, Laurie Arthur says it's crucial that the Riverina remains a rice blast exclusion zone and he's speaking here to Cara Jeffrey. It's really distressing when you put all the effort into growing a crop and then all of a sudden you get uh, a fungal disease that you know, has a really significant impact on the crop. It's, it's really distressing as a grower. So to our fellow growers in the north, um, yes, yeah, really sorry to hear about it. But obviously, of course, then we're um, looking at the implications for our southern industry, which is one of the few blast-free regions in the world. Do you think they will be able to contain it to that northern part of New South Wales or are there real concerns it could end up in the Riverina? Well, for probably over 50 years, we've run an exclusion zone here. So basically no paddy uh, can come into this area, into the Riverina. So um, we enforce it you know, pretty strongly and uh, we'll work with all, all growers in New South Wales um, to try and uh, make sure that it doesn't get into the the industry down here we produce uh, we'll be writing out checks for around about 400 million uh, over the next year for the rice crops we're about to harvest so it's really important that we can make sure it doesn't get into southern new south wales because our varieties aren't bred uh, for rice blast resistance and the variety in the north that is being reported as being impacted at the moment is the sherpa variety is that still widely grown in the riverina yeah, it's one of our prominent varieties here and uh, we get excellent yields from it. But um, there's about 4,000 cultivars of rice blast uh, in the world and if you breed a resistant uh, rice variety to blast, you only ever really breed resistant to, I believe, about 20 varieties of uh, cultivars of blast. So it's really important that any local varieties, um, they need to be you know, bred locally, the, the seed, to have that blast resistance. So we don't have resistance to blast in our varieties here, so it would be um, quite a devastating blow if uh, it was to get down to the south. It's something that we can control, you know, over time when you breed blast-resistant varieties. It reduces yields and it it ups your cost because you've got to spray uh, fungal um, suppressants. Um, So it's, it's something we don't want at all. There's been some discussion about concerns from growers and those in the industry that the response from the New South Wales DPI has been quite slow in alerting them to the disease issues. Has that been a concern from Sunrise, a response from the DPI? Well, it's such a crucial issue for us. We would have liked to have heard a little earlier, but the first thing you've got to work out is, is it rice blast? I mean, it, it, it resembles stem rot and a few other things. So 
uh, one of the first things you need to do is get a, um, a positive confirmation that it is rice blast. And uh, we've, we're confident that the, uh, the department will put their best foot forward and, um, and we'll all as an industry, north, and when I say north up there in the northern rivers and, and here in the Riverina, we need to coordinate and make sure that um, we can deal with this issue. And um, then I think in the north, northern rivers, um, they're going to need some assistance to get some, um, some blast-resistant varieties up there. And we don't have them in the south, so that they're going to need them in the north to, uh, to continue on with their industry. We're working very closely with, with all the growers and, and to make sure that you know, things like field days and that, that we make sure that we you know, keep people out of the crops and, and keep a real eye open. So, yeah, we do want to retain our rice blasts um, yeah, free zone. So we'll be very uh, vigilant. And during your rice growing career, you trialled growing rice in the Ord? That, yeah, that's correct. So um, uh, my neighbour and I, we grew a 1,000 tonne the first year. And the second year, we had some pretty impressive looking crops and uh, we got rice blast. It was uh, airborne from the north from, you know, we believe it, it, advice was that it came from Indonesia and, you know, sort of the spores were airborne. And uh, so we ended up uh, losing the whole crop. It was actually cut for hay for feedlots when the Indonesian cattle bands were on. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've had a bit of experience with rice blast, and it's uh, so I can identify, you know, with those growers that um, have lost crop. It's, it's a really devastating feeling. Was rice blast the reason you stepped away from growing rice in that region? Yeah, that was the reason because um, I'd done a lot of research and thought that, you know, and worked out that it wasn't endemic there, um, and the spores came in from the north, and you know, to get those varieties. Um, would take years to, to breed those varieties. So so we pulled up sticks and um, gave it away after two years, even though we had some, some quite impressive crops up there. With 98% of Australia's rice grown in the Riverina, how is the current crop looking? Uh, the crop's uh, looking quite solid. It's um, in, in the southern areas, of, we've had quite a lot of, um, you know, sort of ducks and, and just general pests have sort of made emergence a little bit difficult. Um, but in the north, uh, I think they're, they're going to be record crops in the north. And I think they'll still be good solid crops in the south. So looking forward to a, a strong harvest. So we're talking about the Murrumbidgee and, uh, and the Murray. When I say north, it's the Murrumbidgee, yeah. Are you expecting any record tonnage to come off? Look, I think there's some superb crops in, in the Murrumbidgee area. And there's some in the south, particularly in the Murrumbidgee area. I wouldn't be surprised if some of those crops... You know they exceed 14 tonnes to the hectare, which no other no other rice growing area in the world can do that. So um, so it's quite unique the the ability for Australian rice crops to with these high yields. When do you think you'll fire up the header at your place? Yeah, I think it'll be about three weeks earlier. So I'm thinking about uh, we'll be into the harvest probably in the last week of March, and uh, it's going to be it's always an exciting time when you're harvesting rice and. And hopefully getting good yields and uh, of course we'll look forward to it as we export that rice to around 50 different countries around the world and uh, and it's eagerly sought after as a premium rice variety all around the world. Sunrise Chairman and Riverina rice grower Laurie Arthur speaking there to Cara Jeffrey. and on that issue we've got a text that uh, came in from Jason who's saying why does Sunrise import rice from Thailand like Hinata while exporting other varieties like uh, Koshi Hikari, which is hard to get locally. 
He says uh, that decision is uh, mystifying. That one uh, from Jason about the importation of rice from Southeast Asia. And uh, also that uh, issue was raised about uh, rice blast as well coming in from Asia too on uh, the monsoonal weather. It's 24 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Let's turn our attention to Bega Cheese. Uh, this week they reported $1.7 billion in revenue for the first half of 2024. That's a 3% increase on the same period last year. And the company's share price shot up 12% in response to that announcement. Bega Cheese managed to pay down about $70 million in debt after it sold a property at uh, Port Melbourne and Canberra and sold off the country the company's interest in a joint venture with Vita Soy. In a presentation to shareholders this week, Bega Cheese CEO Peter Finlay reported a 20% increase in earnings before costs compared to the first half of 2023. He said commodity prices have helped the company improve its results. We are seeing a slight return um, of commodity prices. That's really based around, um, it's really been supply-led at this stage. So supply reduction of Europe, supply reduction of supply being turned off out of the US, which has brought back um, some, some strength in the commodity market. So it's not demand-led yet. How we feel that as demand starts to pick up, that could actually accelerate commodity prices further. That was Bigger Cheese CEO Peter Finlay speaking to shareholders yesterday. It's 26 minutes past 12. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for the world today. South Australia contemplates a $5 billion desalination project to deliver water to the state's far north. Missing persons investigations in two states dominate the headlines. We'll bring you the latest details. And one small step for space exploration. The first private company lands a spacecraft on the moon. What will we learn from it? Join me, the world today at lunchtime. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. As farmers think about what they're going to plant this autumn, uh, wheat futures slid to fresh contract lows this week with continued pressure from weak export demand due to lower priced supplies from Russia and Ukraine and on the prospects of higher US production in 2024. The wheat price also pushed uh, lower on market intelligence that corn and soybean production is likely to rise as well in the US, Europe and South America. Dennis Vosnesensky from the Commonwealth Bank says there hasn't been a huge turnaround in wheat production, but other grains are weighing world prices down. Well, so yeah, you're right. Over the last couple of years, we saw very high prices as stock levels around around the world declined. But at the moment, and moving into the next marketing year, we're actually we've seen a, a, a large resupply of wheat and corn and soy around the world. Whether you look at the Black Sea, North America, South America, there's just been more harvested. And as we move into this year, uh, the, it, it's a bit more of the same. So if we look at the Black Sea, Russia is possibly going to harvest by mid-year another 92, maybe 93 million ton crop. Uh, we have Ukraine, despite the war ongoing, they're continuing to produce. There's also even grain being produced in eastern occupied Ukraine, where Russia is currently occupying it. Then you look at South America, despite talks of some issues uh, overall there's expected to be a harvest a record harvest of global corn and soy again why do we care about corn and soy in australia we barely grow any of it 
the corn can substitute uh, feed wheat and feed barley in feed rations in Asia, and the soy can substitute uh, canola in biofuels around the world. So it all plays into the same uh, end demands. And then you look at North America, while they're not planting corn or soy yet, it's closer towards April, May, the conditions there are looking substantially better than they did last year. If you look at winter wheat area, uh, there's an organization in the U.S. that looks at total national area for, for example, corn or wheat uh, under drought. Last year, it was around, it was, I think, closer to 50% of area under drought or dry conditions in the U.S. Now it's closer to, I think, it's between 10 to 20%. So conditions are looking a lot better, and we're actually seeing some issues with demand. Uh, so overall, more supply now and some challenges on the demand side. So generally, more supply of grain, not necessarily wheat, but more supply of grain, and that's why we're seeing you know, the wheat price hit. Uh, yes, you're right. So if we look at since the start of the year, around 7% decline uh, in Chicago Board of Trade wheat prices, that's a le- it's even dipped below average levels. So a little bit more wheat in 24-25 expected. Uh, and as I said, more corn, more soybeans, uh, ju- just a bit of a resupply. And I guess, you know, farmers will be thinking about planting wheat in Australia soon. You know, uh, uh, fingers crossed we'll get a decent autumn break. Should they be thinking about other things other than, than wheat, perhaps, or, or, you know, looking at uh, maybe look, maybe looking at canola, some issues there too? Well, I, I think a, a lot of the factors that drive what farmers plant are agronomic, so it's a challenge to deviate too much from year to year. From what I've been hearing, uh, if we look at the West Coast, it doesn't seem to be too many farmers saying they're going to, for example, reduce uh, canola planting, even though the price has declined, whereas on the on the East Coast, the story is a little bit different. Uh, also, from what I've been hearing from farmers, maybe, maybe a slight decline, but overall not a massive change. The one thing that would change planting significantly is if, for example, it suddenly gets a lot drier on the East Coast like it has in WA. Um, apart from that, I think uh, rotations will, won't deviate too much. And I guess to the other thing, barley. So, And we're hearing the reports about barley and the amount of barley that China's been buying about up to about 90% in December. So, uh, you know, things looking pretty favourable in terms of um, pricing for barley. Is it mainly because China keeps buying? Uh, China coming back to the market has definitely helped. I mean, as soon as China came back, we saw more supported pricing. The interesting interesting thing is, in Australia, we typically see a relatively strong relationship between APW1 wheat and feed barley. So historically, uh, over the long run, they do tend to follow each other. When China was buying our barley before the anti-dumping tariffs, we saw, depending on the port zone in Australia, around $30, $40 per tonne on average, discount of feed barley to APW1 wheat. That went as high as $90 per tonne discount to APW1 wheat. Uh, and now it's going back to that $40, $50 per tonne level. So I think moving forward, it's hard for barley to entirely disconnect from what's wheat, what wheat is doing. And if wheat prices keep dipping, so will uh, barley from our view. And uh, uh, what other um, impediments are there on the grain markets generally around the world? I think something that's really pushed prices lower recently is the USDA report uh, released about a week and a half ago. Uh, They came out and released their first 2024-25 outlook for the U.S. supply and demand. And the U.S. is important for us because they're a major exporter of many grains uh, from wheat all the way to sorghum. And their data basically showed that stocks are expected to continue building. And the reason it had such a bearish impact on pricing is the USDA is kind of this confirmation of what the market thought. The market was thinking, okay, we might see a little bit more stocks. And they came out and said, yep, we're, we're expecting to see more stocks. And uh, it's actually not just a little increase. It's a fair bit more than what maybe you're expecting. Um, apart from that, I think uh, we, we, we touched on China. 
there are there's a lot of talk about issues on the demand side from China. I know the barley's been going in there, but if we look at overall feed demand, there possibly may be challenges uh, this year. So their their hog prices have declined uh, a fair bit and has caused has started to cause a liquidation of their hog herd. Now the Chinese feed demand has been really uh, instrumental in keeping global feed demand higher over the last couple of years. Uh, and if that starts to wane, it impacts all grains and oilseeds. So there could be some uh, could, could be some headwinds there. Uh, yes, exactly. Dennis Vosnesensky, who is a commodity analyst with uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. It's coming up to 27 minutes to one. We'll go to the weather shortly. But before we do that, quite a few texts coming through on the uh, pig issue. Uh, this one from Dan in Kuma says, a good conscientious pig hunter with a good team of dogs can make quite a difference on a small scale. He says, the trouble is there are too many buffheads out there who are only interested in the blood and the mud and the adrenaline. And um, on a similar vein, Mick says, the cost to colour pig is far cheaper to a farmer using a professional hunter with dogs than for a chopper to aerial shoot, especially in timbered and rough country. He said it's a, another city-centric view, he suggests. And um, also this text as well from Tim in Denny saying uh, when it comes to illegally entering private property and farms, the Animal Justice Party and their associates are the main offenders. The first task Emma Hurst needs to attack is city people with birds who spend their whole lives in cages who have cats that roam freely at nights and and dogs that uh, never get the correct exercise. But no, that would be too close to home for the Animal Justice Party to tackle those issues, says Tim in Denny, you're listening to the Country Hour. It's coming up to 26 minutes to one. Let's uh, find out what's happening with the weather details now. And uh, we're joined by Stephen Stefanek at the at the bureau. Uh, uh, Stephen, uh, it looks like we're going to get a storm on mainly the eastern part of the state uh, coming up. Well, it's moving through Canberra at the moment, I gather. Yeah, so we've got some a little bit of thunder through the ACT there and some showers. And to the north of the ACT, too, you can see a couple of storms just uh, to the west of Goulburn uh, uh, approaching them as well uh, over the next hour or so. And by this afternoon, much much to the east, we'll see some shower and storm activity. And, um, of course, with this sort of activity, rainfall totals will be quite varied across the eastern parts and will depend on whether we're under the storm or not, whether you get get much, uh, get any sort of rainfall uh, and um yeah, but we could get and, uh, we could get a lot, and there could be damaging winds. Yes, um, damaging winds is is the main threat with storms today. If we get a severe storm going, then damaging winds is is a possibility. But can't rule out large hail or with severe storms and heavy rainfall that may lead localised heavy rainfall that may lead to flash flooding as well. Flash uh, flooding, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, that is that could um, be but, an issue. Yeah, but that could be quite isolated risk today, uh, and the winds could be a bit more. We're giving a bit more weight to the winds with the storms today. And overnight, I gather, there could be, again, some storm activity too. Yes, uh, it will continue really late into the evening. That, that, that is risk of storms into the early hours of the morning. Whilst it does that, it will be gradually contracting into the northeast. So by early tomorrow morning, the, the storm activity should have already contracted north of Sydney, but it will be, um, the focus will be on the northeast of the state tomorrow and particularly tomorrow afternoon and evening that risk of severe storms will return and so how and and so how long are we going to be seeing this storm activity when's it going to disperse from the state generally well with with this trough and front coming through a lot of drier air coming in behind that so we'll see it contract 
maybe to the northeastern inland. That's mm. like the northwest slopes and plains on Sunday, just lingering in there, where most of the rest of the state will be under a dry and settled pattern. Then it's a settled period from uh, Monday through to the middle of the week with little of any rainfall, maybe just a light shower near the coast uh, is what we're expecting through, uh, through next week. Now, you mentioned also the uh, possibility of some giant hail. What parts of the state are likely to uh, cop some of that? Well, that's more like the central eastern part. So places like Illawarra and Sydney are at risk of that. That's an isolated threat. And, um, yeah, so there's a chance that we can see storms you know, very well-organised storms, uh, which has that capacity of producing hail or greater di- diameter than five centimetres. As I mentioned, I think wind, and that even that risk of destructive winds, greater than 125 kilometre hour gusts, uh, can't be ruled out, and, uh, and, uh, and that giant hail risk as well. But, um, yeah, is a, is a, is a, yeah, there's a slight chance that we could see these high-end storms. Okay, it remains to be seen where and just how much rain and uh, how much uh, how many damaging winds and those sort of things come. So it's uh, it's in the lap of the gods at the moment. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Stephen, thanks for that. You're welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, coming up to 23 minutes to one. It's time to get some news headlines now from Adam Story. Good afternoon. <laughs> Sorry. Getting getting ready for that storm activity? My tardiness. Yeah, yeah, pretty much all we need to know today, really, isn't it? Mm. Uh, that's on the way. And, of course, uh, Miss Tay-Tay, Tay-Tay. kicks it all off <laughs> your, tonight. Your favourite. Seven, uh, what is it? Uh, 1,200 free public buses and trains. I don't know how I'm getting home tonight, by the way. Um, <laughs> From the concert. Could come back here and give me a lift home. But much appreciated. <laughs> anyway... Um, <clears throat> In the news, a police officer is in custody in connection with the disappearance of a Sydney couple Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. Uh, the officer handed himself into uh, Bondi Police Station last night. Uh, they're still searching uh, for Jesse Baird and Luke Davies and uh, do hold concerns for their welfare. Meanwhile, Victorian police uh, have declared that it's unlikely that missing Ballarat woman Samantha Murphy is still alive after she failed to return from a jog three weeks ago. They did scale down uh, the search party uh, a few weeks ago, but they've now brought in uh, extra squads uh, from the Victorian um Police Department, uh, that included the uh, Counter-Terrorism Unit as well. Uh, so the police say that phone data now indicates the 51-year-old travelled on foot for about seven kilometres to get uh, from her home, uh, but they still have no idea uh, what's happened after mm. after that. Everything, mm. everything uh, just goes silent. Overseas, there's renewed hope of a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, There's going to be uh, talks this weekend involving Israel, uh, talks in Paris involving Israel, uh, Qatar, the United States and Egypt. This will be a uh, ceasefire in return for for more than 100 Israeli hostages. And back home, uh, the free-to-air TV networks are at uh, Parliament House in Canberra today uh, calling for... Uh, their apps to be made more easily available on smart televisions as soon as possible. It it is uh, planned for down the track, but they want it to happen sooner. They're saying that the the Australian TV apps are harder to download, can be harder to download uh, on some TVs. Uh, Some TVs come preloaded, others you have to actually download the individual individual app. Uh, So they they want the manufacturers, basically, I think, to build them into the... uh, 
build them into the system. If I need to get anything done with the TV or anything to do with the computer, I, I get my son to do it. Yeah, I tend not to. <laughs> it doesn't work. No. <laughs> just leave it. Put some music on. <laughs> Light fair, a candle. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm the same. No, I, I'm over it. <laughs> I'm, over, I'm over the tech. All right, and you'll yeah. be back with the news at one o'clock. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. We'll All be right. listening. We'll be listening. All right, it's uh, coming up to 20 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, the New South Wales Irrigators Council says it isn't satisfied with the state government's alternative to buyback plans. The plan identifies water-saving projects that could potentially help deliver some of the water the federal government needs to meet its 450-gigalitre target by the 2027 deadline. New South Wales Irrigators CEO Claire Miller told Monty Jack that's a small step forward in the move away from more buybacks, but she's far from satisfied. So there are several very tangible options in there. Uh, there are water-saving projects at West Corrigan Private Irrigation District. Um, there's a couple out near Hay um, with a water district out there and, and a few other bits and bobs, but they've actually been on the table for quite some time, uh, for several years. So it's frustrating that it's taken until now for hopefully some progress to be made on delivering those projects. There's a few others in there that have got great promise, um, such as the Murrumbidgee Irrigation and Collieamberley Murrumbidgee Optimisation Project. These could really be game changers for water recovery and healthier rivers and avoiding buybacks. But then they rely on goodwill from the Commonwealth in redefining how it counts water towards the 450 gigalitre target. We feel here that the, the New South Wales Minister has really tried very, very hard to find what she can that could possibly be finished um, in time for the 2027 deadline. Um, but it really highlights just how difficult this water recovery um, target is going to be to meet in practice. Uh, the fact is that all of the low-hanging and medium-hanging and even some of the high-hanging fruit has already been picked in past programs, starting with the Living Murray and Water for Rivers and then the Basin Plan from 2008. So it's, it's difficult to find, to be honest, more water-saving projects. Um, but we can also see that buybacks are not proving to be the quick and cheap and easy option that the Federal Minister was telling voters um, because she's experienced shortfalls in the Bridging the Gap program, even though she's been throwing money at water users to sell their water to her. How realistic is it that the federal government will even listen to this plan from the state government? I can't speak for the federal government, but I've got to say that their whole attitude in the last six months of year, last year, when they were bulldozing these changes through federal parliament, it doesn't bode well for them listening to anybody. They totally ignored the concerns, the deafening, chorus of concerns that were coming out of basin communities, whether it was from farmers, whether it was from teachers, whether it was from local government saying, please, no more buybacks, this is not the way to go. They totally ignored them. And um, yeah, I can't say they're particularly, well, we can't see whether they're actually listening to the state governments. Um, we can only hope that New South Wales will continue to prosecute the case that there are other better ways of doing water recovery and fixing these rivers than just through straight out buybacks and reducing the amount of water that's available to grow our food and our fibre. 
New South Wales Farmers, uh, uh, New South Wales Irrigators Council CEO Claire Miller speaking there to Monty Jack. But uh, meanwhile, New South Wales Farmers Water Spokesman Richard Bootle says that the plan does offer some hope. The Commonwealth want to buy 690, want to acquire an extra 690 gigalitres. Um, New South Wales farmers across the board and farmers in other states have put up projects nearly to the value of three times that. Um, and so what New South Wales government, the Minister Rose Jackson, Jackson has said, is that, you know, that, 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 that she wants some of those projects to, to be reopened, looked at again, and given a bit more time. A lot of the projects were sitting there, and we ran out of time due to just the last three yeah, El Nino, uh, sorry, La Nina years, um, which just meant that, you know, the, the works that were contemplated by a lot of those projects just couldn't go ahead. So infrastructure projects that, that make, uh, make, make um, the, the river more efficient, deliver environmental water to uh, environmental water placing places uh, more efficiently, the, those sort of projects are what, what the New South Wales Minister is, is now saying to the Fed, the Fed saying, hey, let's, let's look at these projects, start, start that process so we don't have to go to the buybacks. New South Wales Farmers Water Spokesman Richard Bootle speaking there to Monty Jack and uh, hopefully we'll be speaking to the Minister Rose Jackson about these issues and concerns on Monday's Country Hour. She's agreed to talk to us on Monday morning so uh, we'll bring those details and uh, raise some of those issues, concerns that uh, have been raised there with her uh, with her, and uh, play that interview on Monday on the Country Hour. It's a quarter to one. You're listening to the Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. A fussy little bird facing extinction is being cared for by farmers in the New South Wales Western Riverina. It's estimated there could be less than 1,000 plains wanderers in the wild, which has sparked many concerned landholders to undertake conservation work on their grazing properties. Senior Threatened Species Officer David Parker took Riverina Rural Reporter Cara Jeffrey spotlighting near Hay to try and find the elusive bird in its favoured habitat. There it is. So just go quietly and slowly. So that's an adult male, Plains Wanderer. So you can see with him he's pretty much a, a fawn-coloured bird all around. There's scolloping on his wings and then the yellow legs and that bill or unlike anything else. How do the male and female find each other? Uh, so the female does most of the calling. Uh, the male does a little bit, but the female is the more dominant in the calling. She's got quite a loud, solid um call. She uses both to mark her territory, uh, but also to attract the males. Plural. Yes, you heard that right. Males is what the female plains wanderer is seeking. The female is the one that holds the territory. Um, she'll have around 12 hectares of grassland that she'll call home and she'll share that with a number of males. So it could be two or three or more males. Uh, with the first male she might mate, uh, lay the eggs and then he'll take over the incubation role. She might assist to a small amount uh, but as soon as the eggs are hatched she leaves and leaves the male to to look after all of the young until they're independent. It's very fussy when it comes to habitat, which has earned it the name of the Goldilocks bird. The grasslands can't be too dense or too sparse if it's going to hang around and cohabitate. Conditions have to be just right. 
So the Goldilocks term has been penned for the bird because of the habits that it has. So it just doesn't occupy any grassland out in these areas. It has really specific um, parts of the the structure that it likes. So it has to be 50% or around 50% bare ground, 40% grass, and the rest is made up typically of litter. They really like that key sweet spot, hence the Goldilocks term for it to sit in that area. Achieving that delicate balance for the bird is where landholders' grazing management comes in. Farmers are working with the New South Wales Biodiversity Conservation Trust, also known as BCT, to manage their paddocks to encourage the endangered bird to survive and thrive on their properties. Rhys McCulloch and his family are helping to manage the bird's habitat. The uh, 40 to 60% of the ground cover is perfect because... It, uh, it allows the plant to replenish after we graze it down to 40% and then when it gets to 60 it obviously you stop that plant from it, uh, reaching an oxidising phase which then is wasted for us. So yeah, if the plains wanderer enjoys that then so do we. Following a tender process, the Biodiversity Conservation Trust provides funding to farmers up to $40 a hectare to maintain that perfect ground cover for the Plains Wanderers' habitat. The financial part of the Plains Wanderer program has been perfect for us because we've actually installed uh, drought lots or containment pens which we can now give the country more rest and manage our stock better. Reducing their paddock size is one of the main ways they are managing their ground cover for the benefit of their commercial grazing operation and the Plains Wanderer. This uh, program has um, increased our profit just by managing our pastures. We did manage before, but the Plains Wanderer habitat has made it a more of a um, made it more of a conscious effort to manage the pastures uh, more critically. Which um, we see our sheep have a constant condition score. Um, they're producing pro uh, probably another 200 to 50, uh, 250 to 300 grams of wool per head. Um, just by having feed in front of them and having it in that perfect phase of um, high-production feeds. The Goldilocks bird, that was Riverina farmer Reese McCulloch ending that report from Cara Jeffrey. And to learn more about the work landholders are doing to uh, keep the Goldilocks bird thriving, you can tune in to ABC TV Landline on Sunday. Uh, this Sunday coming up at uh, 12.30, of course, which is uh, essential viewing. It's uh, 10 minutes to 1. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, every day our truckies deliver products to keep our country alive and it's not an easy job, especially when the roads are closed and the towns get cut off, like with all the weather events that Queensland has recently been through. A Torrens Creek pub in North Queensland garnered national attention after it uh, implemented a uh, pay-it-forward scheme to feed truck drivers if they're doing it tough. Grace Nakamura caught up with Oasis Exchange Hotel owner Priscilla Melly. I originally just saw it. Uh, Coles got me onto reels. I'd never sort of looked at reels before. Now I'm addicted. And there was one uh, from the state somewhere where it was just in general for people doing it tough. And then it just came together because the same day I'd, I'd seen that reel, we had a truck driver come in and he'd just finished helping somebody 
uh, fix an airbag and the guy said, look, I'll give you 100 bucks, mate. I'd like to give you more. I've only got 200 bucks to go from, you know, A to B and, and the the customer that the regular said, you know, oh, I'm not taking that. That's that's fine. So we were sort of just chatting about how things are in general, you know, electricity prices, young families, fuel and um, how small towns like us rely on on drivers to get stock and, and produce and, and things like that. And, yeah, we just sort of thought, well, it's not an original idea, but what if we morph this with this and see how it goes? So the pub, or well, we purchased on behalf of the pub a few meals and just put them on the board and, and put it online to a couple of trucky pages saying, hey, this is what we were doing. And I think it was within 24 hours, I said to Nicole, I'm not sure what's happening here. Is this what they call going viral? <laughs> 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 I didn't know. We were getting calls and we still are from people in New South Wales, Adelaide, Perth, Victoria, just everywhere wanting to help so yeah it's uh it's been great i mean these people have to physically look us up on our website to to get the info or chase us up on facebook so they're going out of their way to uh, to donate or to contribute to this initiative it's really it's really um heartwarming to see we've had a lot of people wanting to donate, some ex-truckies, some from a, a family background of truck drivers, uh, pensioners, which pulls at my heartstrings every time they want to donate. Uh, one lady called, she had cancer, she was a truck driver and then she got diagnosed with cancer. And um, So a, a lot of just real uh, everyday Aussie battlers you know, wanting to call up and lend a hand. You know, I literally have to walk around all day with, with the phone on me now because uh, we're getting so many calls and so many people wanting to help. And have you given out any of these free meals yet? And what was the, what was the response from the truckies? Yeah, we have, but more than anything because it's still fresh and it's, you know, week one, we're just telling them about it, you know, hey, this is what we've started and all these people are calling in, putting stuff on the board, so please don't feel uh, embarrassed or whatever if you're having a tough week. Um, just just pick something off the board, bring it to Cole and we'll make sure you get fed. Talking about the situation with the Pay It Forward scheme, that's Priscilla Millet from the Oasis Exchange Hotel and she was talking there to Grace Nakamura. It's coming up to five minutes to one on the country hour. Now, before we go to markets, numbers on offer at sale yards across the central west have fallen dramatically this week as producers hold on to their livestock during what's been a wetter than average summer. Frequent storms have brought more than 200 millimetres of rain to areas around Cowra and Orange already this year, more than double the average rainfall for January and February. It's seen the number of cattle and sheep for sale at the Carcourt sale yards fall heavily, while it's a similar story at Forbes. Blaney Livestock Agent Ben Ems spoke to Tim Fuchs about the remarkable season producers have seen, particularly on the central tablelands, and uh, what they're experiencing as a result. Yeah, look, we've just seen a um, on both the cattle and sheep fronts over the last week or so, we have just seen the market correcting, especially on the... The heaviest on the heavier cattle, uh, like cows and heavier slaughter cattle, we have seen those come off to a fair degree. Um, you know, a week or two ago, we were seeing heavy cows making up into the 280 odd cents mark, uh, you know, and, and looking like they had plenty of momentum. 
And by this week, you know, the best of the cows are making around in the mid-40s. He's pulling up, and a lot of cows not making 240 cents. Um, going forward, I think, it, you know, supply will change, especially with the season. We're looking, you'd think... Um, those prices will turn around. You mentioned the season that uh, farmers are experiencing at the moment. Numbers are course down for both the cattle and the sheep sales at Carcor this week. Is that simply because people are holding on to their stock? Yeah, like the numbers backing off this week, as they have in a number of centres, are just purely a reaction to the price corrections experienced last week. Um, uh, people taking advantage of the grass in front. Like the tablelands at present, well, I can't remember a better end to um, the hottest, driest summer in the history of the world ever. Like it's, it's the best running start to autumn that we've ever had. So if, um, if we can continue to get a share or two through March, we will be into a great season, and I think that will allow people to um, hold on to stock, put kilos on them, and that will even out supply. Uh, and, and evening out supply will, will rectify the prices. And what about the terms of the quality of the animals that you're seeing at the moment? Yeah, generally been some pretty good stock coming through. There's been some really, really good cows come through in the last month. Um, good big heavy cows um, and a lot of good heavy slaughter cattle. Um, uh, yeah, I think the, the quality's been right up there and I think that will continue to be the case given the season that we've got in front of us. So if, if you look at the weeks and the months ahead, we know Anzac Day is always, you know, the, the, the day that people have in their calendar about, you know, what kind of season, what kind of winter are we looking at? But if we continue to see what we've been seeing at the moment, what are you expecting to see over the weeks and months ahead? Look, if, if it continues like it is now, you know, we've been copping the shower every second day almost. Like, you've never seen a better. We'll have as good an autumn as we've ever had if it continues on it as it is now. And if... You know, I always maintain the autumn season is the most critical season for your year on the tableland. If you get a good autumn, it just makes the rest of the year so easy, especially going through winter. That's Ben Ems, who's a livestock agent at Blamey. Let's go, Blamey. Let's go to markets. And to Griffith Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon, everyone. It was sheep that got everyone talking at Griffiths today with some big price rises across the mutton run. Heavy merino ewes in wool sold to $183.50 and big crossbreds reached $165. While the mutton market has been gathering pace this week, this sale did hit highs we haven't seen for a while. Good runs of sheep were estimated as costing processors a solid 400 cents a kilo and better, with some pens coming in close to 500 cents. In dollar terms, there was a lot of sheep from 100 to 150 dollars, with the lighter and leaner types 60 to 90 dollars. When buyers were asked the reason for the sudden rise in mutton values, some suggested it was the power of people withdrawing stock from sale yards and the lower numbers about. Not as much joy in the lambs at Griffith, with prices just similar to weaker in spots for the secondary types. A very good lineup of heavy lambs over 30 kilos carcass weight made from 190 to a top of 238 dollars to average around 655 cents a kilo. Most good lambs, 600 to 650 cents. Planer types were tracking under 600 cents a kilo. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Thanks, Jenny. You're listening to The Country Hour. We're heading up to news time at 1 o'clock. <laughs>